Hello and welcome to the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. My name is Colin Yeo and I'm joined by Sonia Lenigan. And this month, which is January, we are looking back at some of the events of um, December. But we're, we're really, the main focus this time is going to be looking ahead to the coming year and looking back at the previous year as well and some of the kind of major events that took place. And we will be talking through some of the um, some of the stuff that we've covered in December in the course of doing that because quite a lot happened um, towards the end of the year in that in that final month um, but we're not we're, we're trying to take a slightly more free-ranging approach and, and not be too constrained by the um, the contents of those those blog posts so I'm not quite sure how that's going to go so um, as ever if you are a lawyer and you need continuing professional development then we run a quiz um, that goes alongside this for members and you can find the details for that at freemovement.org.uk slash training and without any further ado I, I think we'll just kind of get into the the substance of things um, before I do Sonia do you want to just say hello to prove you're actually here hi everyone I'm actually here <laughs> okay excellent um, so um I, we said that I would start by talking about small boat crossings because, and that that is one of the major features I think of of twenty twenty two. And they're they're not new la- over the last year, but they have expanded very considerably. Um, and new, small boat crossings were, were essentially new in two thousand and eighteen. They've been increasing year on year. Um, I think at the start of that phenomenon, we could suggest that it was a change of route, but twenty twenty two really shows that that's not the case and that there are more people now enter- entering by um, irregular means using the the small boat crossings route um, than ever came before um, it, it, in small lorries in, in the last 20 years or so. Um, so, you know, we're kind of heading back towards the numbers that we saw in the early 2000s, although we're not quite there yet. The, the actual, the numbers, the numbers haven't reached the same levels as um, so 2002, which I think was the, the previous peak. So we're looking at, I think, over 45,000 people crossing in small boats over the course of, of 2022. And, um, and and there have been tragedies, I mean, in some ways, surprisingly few, because you know nobody thinks that small boat crossings are a good thing. Just nobody thinks that. Um, and the, the, the danger to the people doing it is, is really obvious. But there's been some just incredible work by um, the lifeguards, by the Coast Guard, by the Home Office as well to try and prevent tragedies happening. But it's you know, ultimately unavoidable that some people are going to drown doing that. And, and we have seen a, a terrible incident towards the end of the year. Um, so that's that's been one of the kind of main events, I think, of, of 2022. And it's, of course, shaped the kind of discourse around asylum issues. It's become a major political issue. Um, and it's likely to continue into 2023 as well. Um, Sonia, have you got anything you want to, to say on small boat crossings? Uh, yeah, I guess just as long as there are no alternatives available for the people who are coming via the channel to come to the UK through other routes, then there's no reason I can see for those numbers to drop this year. Um, I suppose the question for me is who is the government going to attack and blame next when the Nationality and Borders Act was still in bill form? I was saying that this was not going to reduce channel crossings as the government claimed it would. And at the time I was wondering what they would do and who they would blame when that didn't happen. As we've seen last year, the answer to that question is to attack Albanians. So 
I guess we need to see once whatever is going to be put in place to address Albanian cases is done, who are the government going to blame then? I thought maybe the French, um, that's something that they've done in the past. But yeah, we just need to wait and see because I don't think that things are going to change. The other point I would make is that obviously the government keeps looking to Australia's policies. The distance uh, that people are travelling from Indonesia to to get to Australia is around 150 miles and the channel is 22 miles. So the government really needs to stop pretending that this is the same and can be addressed in the same way. Yeah, and the Australians, as I understand it, they they essentially do interceptions and and what ultimately amounts to pushbacks. Um, so you know they intercept people at sea, and rather than taking them to some other random country or to a small island, which is the, the policy that gets a lot of attention in the press, um, you know Nauru and so on, you've got these prison camps basically. Um, instead, they actually take them back to the country of departure. So they've got deals with places like Indonesia um, in order to just take people back there, which the UK doesn't have with the country of departure in this case, which is you know France or, or sometimes Belgium. They're also able to better hide these sort of um, procedures because of the size of the ocean that they're dealing with. Yeah, so it's less less visceral, less sort of less visual, literally less, less yeah. visual. People can't see it happening. Um, yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah. I and mean, who, who to blame is an interesting one. So that, and the, I, I'm pretty Patel said she'd stop the boats. I think Braverman in her first incarnation as home secretary before her, uh, her sacking and then reemergence also said she would stop the boats, that kind of very resonant Australian phrase they can't they can't stop the boats and ultimately and this this route seems so well established now that promising that you're going to prevent any small boat crossings seems very very unwise because it's just not possible across such a um a a, a body of water that is both narrow but also wide you just can't do it yeah and it's very silly to assert that such a thing will happen yeah and yet so you, I know, I'm going to try and press you here, I, which is, yeah, I, I'm not sure I'd be willing to make a commitment here either way, although you'd probably reciprocate in a second. But do you reckon they'll be going, you know, the numbers will be going up or down over the coming year? Um, I can't think of a reason why they would go down. So I'm going to say they'll go up. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd like to think that they've kind of peaked, but I think that might just be wishful thinking, really. Um, there's, like you say, I can't see a reason why people would stop pursuing this 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 route into the UK at the moment, if that's where they want to go. Um, and certainly there's nothing that we've really seen so far from the government that looks like it would act as a genuine deterrent, if, if deterrence is at all possible, um, or, or as any kind of plausible policy response ultimately um so yeah i guess the default is it's likely to carry on going up basically um okay well let's let's move on then to talk about something slightly slightly more cheerful um and and that's still on the asylum front and and it's still about the arrival of refugees but it is about safe and legal routes um, well, yes, we haven't been seeing Ukrainians and people from Hong Kong crossing the channel. And the reason for that is because the government has set up safe routes for them to come here. Um, in relation to Ukrainians, bringing over 100,000 people to the UK to safety is something that the UK should be proud of. However, it should also be contextualised with the around 7.9 million Ukrainian refugees recorded in Europe. 
Um, however, the Ukraine scheme, it was still too slow and too complex. There's still no path to settlement for Ukrainians. And many people are now facing homelessness after the Homes for Ukraine scheme has ended. So that is not without its issues. However, you know, it, it as you can see from the fact that the people are not crossing via the channel, it, it is an option that will prevent people from utilising that route. Um, another scheme was the Hong Kong one. I think I saw a number around 76,000 people have come from Hong Kong. It's barely been a blip in the media. I haven't seen anyone complaining about that number of people coming from Hong Kong, rightly so. Um, these are people who were given a safe and relatively easy route to access. They were permitted to work and support themselves from the outset, which no doubt helped. Um, initially, the leave was granted subject to no recourse to public funds, but that was later changed so that people were able to apply for a change of conditions to remove that where they do ne did need to access public funds. I mean, essentially, the lesson is that safe routes do work and more must be set up for people because we can see, again, that those coming by the channel are those to whom safe routes are not available. It's really that simple. Yeah, and and as you, you say, there's been very little controversy around um, the entry of, of people from Hong Kong or about the entry of people from Ukraine either. And the numbers are far greater than the numbers crossing in in, um, in in small boats. So I think that the total of people who've arrived by irregular means when I was looking at this earlier in the year was about a quarter of, of the number who'd arrived by means of the Ukraine and Hong Kong schemes and the tiny number who, who've admitted been admitted by the other resettlement schemes, which are still kind of, you know, theoretically there in the background, but in fact, almost impossible um, to access, you know, only tiny numbers have come in in the last year on those other, other alternative schemes. So, you know, it does show that you know, it is plausible to offer safe and legal routes and that, that you know, that, that, that does reduce um, demand if sufficient um, safe and legal routes can, can be offered. Mm. Um, you, you mentioned the, the Nationality and Borders Act earlier, and that was kind of, that should have been, or, or maybe it was one of the big sort of legal events of the last year. Um, you know, it's quite a lot of sections to it. It's, it's kind of on the face of it, it looks like a pretty meat, meaty piece of, of legislation. Um, what, what did you think of it, Sonia? Um, well, a lot of it isn't in force yet, obviously. Um, in relation to asylum, the bits that came into force uh, the 28th of June was mainly the increased standard of proof and also differentiated treatment of refugees uh, when they're granted leave. So in relation to differentiation, it's going to take a while to see the impact of this, but we know just from common sense that in addition to the negative impact it's going to have on integration and the ongoing trauma caused to people of having to engage with the Home Office for a much longer period of time, there's going to be a further burden on the Home Office as it will more than double the number of applications that refugees need to make in order to settle here. I mean, we will discuss the state of the backlog later, but, you know, this is absolutely a problem in the not-too-distant future. Um, the other thing I would say, particularly to draw people's attention to, is that the Tribunal Procedure Committee is consulting on implementing more of the Nationality and Borders Act, particularly uh, rules changes arising from accelerated detained appeals, priority removal notices, and age assessment. 
I would really encourage people to look at that and respond ahead of the deadline, which is the 19th of January. Yes, that's still a couple of weeks away almost. But it's important for people to understand that the, um, the legislation requires the Tribunal Procedure Committee to introduce these rules. So there will be a fast track the consultation is going to be about it, it's about the way that it works, not whether there should be one, but the way that it works, because the the terms of the legislation is mandatory. So the Tribunal Procedures Committee doesn't have a choice about introducing some kind of rules with the the time limits that are actually set out in the legislation as well. But that doesn't mean that you know there aren't um, possibilities for ameliorating the effect and and so on with with some sort of thoughtful and, and, and carefully crafted rules. Um, yeah, it was just, it's kind of a big damp squib ultimately when it comes down to it. It's, it's, and it's not, you know, the, the short-term impact of that legislation has been zero, basically. There's, there's, there's been, no, that's not quite true. So it, for, for most people, it's been zero. There's, there's a small group of people for whom it's had an absolutely appalling immediate impact, which is around the criminalization of asylum. So um, we're not really seeing these come through to the higher courts yet. So people like me who don't do criminal defense work aren't seeing these cases. Um, but I understand that there have been something like, actually this was, this dates from a couple of months ago, but sorry, 400 prosecutions. Um, so some people are being prosecuted under the amendments to criminal law that were, were, were introduced by the Act. But in terms of um, you know, uh, impact on uh, asylum work and the work of asylum and immigration lawyers, it's been basically zero so far. And it's because, as you said, a, a lot of the changes only take effect for people who claimed asylum after the 28th of June. I'm frowning, which podcast listeners won't see, obviously. It's, 20, it's June, not July, wasn't it? It's 28th of June, yes. Yeah, it's yeah, one yeah. of those dates that is just seared into your memory. Well, mine anyway. It's seared <laughs> into yours. your memory, yeah, <laughs> clearly. Um, but um, yeah, it'll be, it, you know, it, at current decision-making speeds, it'll be years before we saw any of those cases actually come through, certainly if you're a barrister anyway, um, if you're a solicitor, you see it a bit sooner. But um, yeah, if um, if decision making speeds increase, then we will start to see them a bit sooner, I suppose, and we'll we'll come back to that issue when we look ahead to the to the coming year later. Yeah, Group Two decisions are being made at the moment, um, so you know it, it's a thing that's happening. I'm interested in the standard of proof and whether that's going to play a role in changes to grant rates. Um, so that's something to keep an eye on as well. But it's all too early. We're not going to see any of this in the statistics for a while. Yeah. Um, moving on to the backlog, our Prime Minister said, I think, that all asylum cases that were made before the 28th of June will be resolved by the end of next year. He said that last year. So that's this year? Or yeah. is it 2024? No, I think it, it's got, he said it last year, so it's got to be by the end of 2023. Um, that is yet another unachievable goal that he's set for himself that is not very sensible in my view. Even if it was the end of 2024, I don't think that would happen either. Um, it's very difficult to see how that is going to happen without some form of fast-track granting of high-grant nationality cases, which so far they haven't come out and said that they're going to do. Um, I think the backlog will continue to grow as long as they keep using inadmissibility and having cases sit there unnecessarily for six months before they even enter the system. Um, As I just mentioned, Group 2 extensions are looming on the horizon for 2025. One thing I'm sure used to happen, I don't think I've 
just invented this. But I think the Home Affairs Select Committee used to report on the asylum backlog very regularly. I think oversight of that type is far overdue and needs to be put back in place so that the Home Office is actually held to account effectively on this. And I wish that Hask would reinstate that level of oversight and scrutiny of the state of the asylum backlog, because I think it was really useful when they did that previously. Yeah, that was when Yvette Cooper was chair, wasn't it? And um, But I, th- I think the thing that kind of enabled them to do that and get a certain amount of attention was that it was a formal target. So there was a formal target of making decisions within six months until about 2018, I think. And then- No, I'm talking about legacy days when they were trying to clear legacy. So like way back when. Oh, right. I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. I, I tried to find it. Um, yeah, like going back really quite far. Um, I tried to find some of the reports this morning but because parliament updated their website it's harder to find the older stuff and so i gave up relatively yeah. quickly um but yeah they used to report on the asylum backlog very regularly it was extremely useful yeah i think something and, like that should be done again well and it, it has at last hit the news though I and mean, so we've been banging on about the the backlog for quite some time on on free movement and i've I just been sort of you know, a, a certain number of journalists and policymakers sort of intermittently read the website. And so sort of, I've been trying to get people to to take some, you know, pay some attention to this, basically, because it just seems such a bad policy all rounds to have a big backlog. And this is the year when um, the backlog really exploded. And also people started paying attention. So there, there is some some scrutiny of that now, although, you know, some formal scrutiny by, um, by Parliament would absolutely be um, be very helpful, but yeah, I, I tried to run some of the maths on 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 Sunak's plan, and um, I think I worked out that you'd be looking at eight thousand decisions a month, and they only made sixteen thousand decisions in the whole of the last year, and you know it just seems implausible that on the announcements that Sunak has made so far about which require huge recruitment of of officials at the Home Office, sort of doubling the number from, you know, they've already doubled the number from 600 to 1,200, and they're going to double it again to 2,400 caseworkers. But it takes time to do those things. And he's only got a year to meet this pledge. So on on things as they stand at the moment and the, the announcements that they've so far made, it really does seem impossible to do that. But I guess that you know, where the Prime Minister makes a pledge. They don't want to be uh, proved, <laughs> proved not to have met it. And I think we probably will be looking at some sort of further announcements during the course of the year as it becomes clear that they just can't meet that commitment. And, you know, like you say, some sort of hopefully positive fast track, some sort of um, targeted amnesty is not quite the right word, but, um, you know, the, the, the countries with really high grant rates like like Syria, like Afghanistan, um, like Sudan, um, and, 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 and sort of clear those cases out of the backlog so, to enable the Home Office to focus on, on the cases that matter. Um, but like you say, it's like the, the, this whole kind of 10-year settlement route for refugees that was introduced by the Nationality and Borders Act. I mean, it was actually done by the rules. It didn't need to be done in legislation, did it? But, um, you know, the Home Office isn't sitting twiddling its thumbs at the moment with, you know, they're not short of stuff to do. So creating a huge amount of extra work for themselves and also trying to, to do the backlog um, does seem unwise, optimistic, um, perhaps. Hmm. And what do you think about the the rest of? Um, I tell you, let, let's come back to that later when we're sort of looking ahead to the to, to the coming year. Um, I was going to talk a little bit about Rwanda. Um, it's kind of such a big topic. I'm not quite 
sure what to say about it, but it certainly was one of, again, the big things of the last year. And we finally had the the Rwanda judgment handed down in in December. And listeners will be will be aware of what the outcome was that, that the High Court held that um, the plan itself is lawful, it's compatible with the Refugee Convention and with domestic law, and therefore it can proceed. But the court also held that the decisions in the individual cases were were just so shockingly poor that um, those were not lawful decisions. So the the plan can kind of go ahead is the the court line, but the um, the, the the individual decisions need to be remade. Um, there's going to be an appeal inevitably. Um, I haven't heard what the grounds are or, or I, you know what's going on with that. I think it's probably we haven't hit the deadline yet. Um, but so it's not the last word. Um, but it's it's kind of I don't know. My I'm I'm pretty pessimistic about this. I'm my my feeling is ultimately that um, the domestic courts are going to find the whole thing lawful, not necessarily quite for the reasons that the high court gave. And judgment was pretty suspect in lots of ways. Um, but um, you know it, that that doesn't really help the government ultimately. You know, I've I've got this really bad feeling that a few people are going to end up on a, a flight to Rwanda and stuck there. Um, but even if that does happen, you know, it's only a small number of people it's going to happen to. It'll be terrible for them, but it doesn't help the government. It just doesn't really achieve very much for them other than some sort of media success, some sort of performance, basically. Um, what, what did you what did you think of the, the judgments on you? Not much. Um, I'm sticking to the assessment I made when I did the podcast on Rwanda with CJ and John Featonby last year, which is I still don't think anyone is going to go. I agree that I think the courts are likely to find it lawful ultimately. Um, But I think it may time out. And obviously, there are still going to be individual challenges possible. Um, I think it's worth highlighting the fact that interim relief was refused for these cases by the domestic courts, even though the decisions were ultimately found to be unlawful. So we knew those interim relief decisions were dodgy at the time, and they were. Um, So yeah, I still am hopeful that no one will end up going, but I'm less hopeful about the the ultimate end of the litigation. But that is not a reflection on the merits of the case, but rather the judicial system. Yeah, yeah. And and ultimately, the Supreme Court uh, in its kind of recent incarnation has been exactly very, um, what's the what's the word I'm looking for, Sonia? Very, <laughs> it's, it's not necessarily a good word. Um, I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to use the word deferential, um, but, which is fairly neutral um, to, towards government policy. And basically, they've been very self-consciously in their view, non-political, which of course is a is a political stance ultimately. Um, but that that, that and, and and you know if you, if you're sort of hoping for for them to intervene and overall government policy, then um, you, you you really are an optimist. But I hope you're right. I hope you're right. And 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 it's it's only plausible that it could time out because the the next election where it, I think everybody currently is expecting it to be kind of autumn 2024. And it's quite a big ask to get a big case of this nature. And just that, that you know, the the sheer number of arguments that are run in the case is, is considerable. That will narrow down over time. But they're, they're really meaty 
arguments as well about international law and how it interacts with domestic law and the interpretation of the refugee convention and so on um so it and there might also be an, an appeal to strasbourg ultimately if, if if the case is rejected by the supreme court so it's quite um it, you know, it does feel plausible that um the government won't be able to rush it through um before then but i imagine they'll be trying to get it expedited i don't know how feasible that will be um so yeah i hope i hope you're right but i'm i'm yeah, I'm a bit of a pessimist. Um, I think the litigation is probably more useful to the government than the actual process of sending people to Rwanda. Because as you said, it's not going to be very many people and it's certainly not going to change anything in relation to channel crossings. Yeah. Whereas the litigation, you know, they can say, we're trying to do this. It's it's the lefty lawyers, the activist lawyers who are stopping us. Yeah, yeah. I think, I, I think you're right about that um, because... You know, if suddenly this went ahead, a few people were removed, and you know the crossings continued, then um, you know that would be problematic for the government, and that is basically what would happen. So, um, so yeah, perhaps they're quite happy to be um, to be stuck in court with it. Um, I don't know whether to talk about the kind of the the substance of the decision um, because I I think you know there are some really interesting issues around the way that the refugee convention operates and those kind of. Articles at, at 31, 32, 33 about non penalization, um, about expulsion, about non refoulement, and you know, the kind of slightly um, imprecise language that the, the Refugee Convention is, is drafted in. But I think that's probably. I think that's probably a sort of separate topic for another day. I think we, I think let's move on from that and not get... It's also get... bad for my blood pressure. I could feel the stress just right. Just thinking about the bit where they're like, oh, no, lawyers aren't needed. Uh, yeah. That. And there's some really, really aggravating bits of that judgment. Yeah, um, a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the, and the idea that, um, you know, it's not a penalty to remove people to Rwanda just seems you know, otherworldly. It really does. That's obviously the whole point of it. That's the whole basis of the policy is that it's a penalty. It's a deterrent measure. Um, okay. Well, let's move on anyway, though. Let's not, let's not let our blood pressures, um, <laughs> rise, rise too far. Um, Jed Pennington penned a piece on um, the 22nd of December about will there be another Rwanda removal flight? And I think this is quite an interesting topic. I don't really want to say too much about it. it you know, the government is has stated that it's not going to pursue another removal flight while these proceedings are ongoing. And I think there is an, an issue about whether the government needed to make that commitment. But the fact is that they have, and therefore hopefully they'll stick to it um and that seems to be jed's view and he's you know he's directly involved in the litigation so um hopefully we won't be seeing any attempts to um to, to send people to rwanda in the meantime um the other thing that we thought we'd mention about the last year before we start to look ahead is the net migration figures which also came out at the end of the year um and Famously, um, the net migration figures are the, the highest that they've ever been um, post-Brexit. So net migration was just over half a million people. And of course, net migration is the number of migrants coming in sub- from which total the number who have left is subtracted. So the number coming in was actually 1.1 million, uh, which is which is a lot of people. And um, you know, with that news coming out, the government is uncomfortable because they want to reduce net migration, they say, um, but in fact, it's going up and up on their watch. And you know, there's some interesting discussions to be had about whether this is unusual because of, for example, the Ukraine and Hong Kong schemes, which have, have, have enabled quite a lot of people to come to the UK who wouldn't normally have been able to, but may well have 
may well the the, the the rate of arrival from those countries may well slow in 2023 because um, you know think the situation may stabilize the people who want to come maybe already have come um, or whether it's some sort of new normal and whether actually just high international movement of people is is how things are going to be in the future particularly with you know the number of vacancies that we've got in this country at the moment um, low unemployment um, at least as things stand, you know, we do have a recession looming, which might might change that, I suppose. Um, but the 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 point I think for us now really is that there's likely to be some kind of policy or political response to those figures because the government will want to make it look like it's it's doing something to try and reduce the figures. And that that sort of leads us on to to looking ahead to the to the coming year. So um there was a big story in the in the Times, wasn't there, Sonia, about um it's not government policy. It was more, more kind of Braverman's own preferences for how she she might um, address high net migration. Do you want to say anything on that, or or, or shall I sort of carry on waffling? Um, well, yes, I think this is the article that was mentioned in one of your blog posts, and you said you know the government's come out and said something completely different afterwards. So perhaps this is just Braverman briefing the Times directly. Um, the one thing that really jumped out of, uh, at me not directly relevant to the point, um, is where it said in the article, under a draft of the proposals seen by the Times, the government would increase the minimum income threshold, etc. Um, one of your blog posts was about bank statements and Windrush lessons not being learned. I, I think all of that died a long time ago. Mm. Why are draft proposals being sent to the Times instead of actual stakeholders? The only stakeholder engagement that I'm seeing uh, seems to be with the Times and those who are willing to pay to read it. Uh, stakeholder engagement was part of Windrush Lessons Learned Review and it just isn't happening. Yeah. Um, and obviously the proposal to target the families of British citizens, I mean, everyone should be shocked and appalled by that because, you know, this is people's families the families of British citizens and the Home Secretary thinks that that is the group of people to target. As far as students, university funding is reliant on overseas students paying high fees. I feel like I've had this rant before, possibly on here, maybe just to, you know, people on the tube. Well, it's just it's just constant, isn't it? Because the government says, "Oh, we need more students," and then they actually you know, introduce some policies that do encourage students to come here, and they do come here. And then they say, "Oh, but there's too many students now," and and so it's just cyclical. They kind of it goes up and down. Um, although I suppose to be fair, the long term trend is basically up. You know, there are more international students, considerably more now than there were, you know, ten twenty years ago. Um, but yeah, the the stuff on families is is very aggravating, um, and. Yeah, I've got a bad feeling about that because the if you if you think back to when the level was set, it was ten years ago, two thousand and twelve, um, and it was set at what was then a very high level because the the minimum wage, you know, if you're working full time minimum wage, you were earning about I think it's about twelve and a half, thirteen thousand, and it was set at eighteen thousand six hundred. So you literally could not do that; you could not earn that much money. And now the minimum wage. I think it comes in at about nineteen thousand. So it, it's you know that that level has eroded over the last ten years, and it still causes huge hardship to some people, and and just it puts them on the ten year route to settlement if they if they get in by the exceptions and so on, which is actually really um, 
uh, it really penalizes you over time because of the extra costs, the extra stress, the extra uncertainty. It, it keeps you in low-skilled employment potentially because you've got these two-and-a-half-year um, sort of grants of, of leave, which employers don't like. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's, it looks like um, really bad news. And I suppose that we, we should say this is not, like you said, this is not government policy yet. Um, you know, it was. Um, it looks like it was a Home Office briefing, not a government briefing. If you see what I mean, it's like there is sort of a distinction between the two with the sort of dysfunctional lot that we've 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 got at the moment. Um, the other thing they mentioned was shortage occupation stuff, which seems a bit odd um, because you know that's the workers that we're short of. So why you'd want to reduce uh, entry by people that you're short of is a bit of a mystery. Um, but yeah, I can't say I'm quite so a- aggravated about shortage occupation skilled workers and students. I mean, it seems self-harming to do that. I, you know, I, I don't see why you would do that if you're in charge of the country and the economy. But the thing that really annoys me, really makes me upset is the, um, is the family stuff because that is just, you know, it's just cruel. Um, and I mean, if inflationary arguments are going to be used in relation to the minimum income threshold, then why not for legal aid rates? <laughs> yes, because they, they very much like to have their cake and eat it, don't they? Um, yeah, yeah. So, and that, those are the kind of, those are the proposals we've seen so far. I, whether these are going to happen, I don't know, but I imagine we are going to see some kind of measures announced that look like or sounds like they're going to reduce immigration, even though in real life, they're not likely to have much of a, a real world impact, I wouldn't have thought. Um, Right. Well, getting back to, to sort of other issues coming up, and we've talked a bit about Sunak's asylum plan. There, there, were, there are a couple of things that we didn't talk about, though, when we, we mentioned that earlier. So we, we talked about increasing the number of caseworkers, which is a kind of central element in it. But he also suggested that the Home Office um, would increase the number of workplace raids. And um, I think you mentioned this, um, start doing automated banking checks as well. Um, and also remove a lot of Albanians. Uh, I think I, I can't imagine the right-wing press holding Sunak to account in the way that they do other politicians. But um, you know, he did say that they would remove basically all the Albanians in the backlog. And assuming that he means all the ones who don't get status, you know, there are still what twenty-three thousand Albanians in the backlog. That is a lot of Albanians to remove. Um, yeah, they're not, they just can't do that. You know, they, they, they're not very good at doing removal. So Sunak is basically talking about a massive increase in Home Office activities from quite a low base. Do you think? Do you think they can do that? No. Essentially, <laughs> um, they are putting more resources into this, but people are inexperienced. Um, Bad decisions are going to be made. Uh, Jenrick has indicated he thinks the grant rate is too high, so there's ministerial pressure for more refusals. This is going to have a knock-on effect to the tribunal at a time where legal aid providers are no longer doing this work, some of them anyway. The FTT, the tribunal, will be flooded with litigants in person. Um, In relation to legal aid, they've just announced a review to report in 2024 that's of no use whatsoever, particularly where we've seen the government has ignored the recommendations of the criminal legal aid review. Um, so I think, you know, the ongoing lack of legal aid is a huge problem. And that does affect whether or not the Home Office can manage this stuff. As far as raids and removals, I just don't see how things are going to change there either. Yeah. And and there's a reason why those raids and those banking 
um, checks were suspended, essentially, which is because of the, the Windrush review, because the Home Office suddenly found that it wasn't confident that it was doing, you know, it was, it was targeting the right people, essentially, and obviously setting aside whether it should be doing this at all, which is you know, our view. Um, you know, they, they, they sort of rode back from, from all that enforcement activity because they weren't confident it was, it was targeting the right people as far as they were concerned. And the point you made in the article is EU citizens. I mean, that is absolutely yeah. a recipe for disaster. Yeah. So, and, and we'll, we'll come back to talking about EU citizens um, right at the very end. But yeah, I mean, there's now, what, six, over six million, I think, um, applications under the EU settlement scheme. It's not all necessarily of whom are actually resident in the UK, but the vast majority of whom must be. That is a lot of extra home office records. <laughs> and, you know, if they've got an error rate and everything, then um, that's a lot of extra people. And they do so, have an error rate. Yeah, and they do. They do. <laughs> you know, it, report after report by the Chief Inspector of Borders Immigration says that they're rubbish at data entry and data recording and data retrieval and, and that, um, yeah, there are massive problems there. So um, this is kind of a recipe for disaster. And I, I guess, you know, one of the problems we've got here is just the change of personnel all the time. So aside from whether the Home Office was ever serious about Windrush, and I, I I would be minded to say maybe they some people were serious about it, but you, you've got this kind of constant change of home secretaries, of prime minister now as well, of all of the the spads around them, special advisors and uh, and so on. And they just don't know what was in the Windrush re- lessons round review. They don't, they, they, you know, they haven't taken time to, to read it or they don't care about it. Um, you know, they're, they're looking ahead to the election and they just don't know this stuff basically. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty, um, I'm pretty pessimistic again on that front. Yeah, this is not a this is not a happy New Year podcast. Ah, uh, no, it's not, is it? It's not. Um, I, I don't know. Twenty twenty two was so bad. I was hoping we could say something might be better in twenty twenty three. On which notes, Sonia, you were going to talk about new legislation. Well, I don't think that's anything to no, be excited about no, either. It's not, is it? It's not. Um, well, essentially, again, there's just been lots flying around in the Times. I've given up trying to guess what is going to be in it. Uh, I think they've mentioned something around detained fast track. That's already in the National Alien Borders Act. Um, they've also said stuff around people will not be able to settle in the UK. That echoes temporary protection visas as used in Australia, which unlike here will never lead to settlement. Um, but again, group two refugee status already looks like the UK's attempt to emulate that system. Um, the only thing we really do know is that whatever comes will be cruel and harmful and ultimately ineffective in stopping people crossing the channel. Yeah. And I feel like a broken record again saying this. I mean, they just don't need new legislation. They've already got all the powers they need to be as draconian as they could choose. Um, and, you know, this, I think all Sunak said about the new legislation was to make it clear that you would be detained and removed and that you would never be allowed to settle i am paraphrasing slightly there but you know the nationality and borders act was supposed to do that anyway and it's, it's created this 10-year route to settlement for refugees um I, you know if, if, if the home office is the problem is they haven't got anywhere to remove people to you know you can't remove a refugee back to their their home country where they'll be in danger you can't do that you can't remove them back to the eu because there's no deal you can't remove zillions of them to Rwanda because they only take a few hundred. Um, and even if you 
sort of agree loads of Rwanda-like deals with other countries. That's still not going to be that many people. Um, so they'll stay here in the UK and they'll just have to constantly renew their leave, which is more work for the Home Office to do. Uh, it's just totally pointless. It, you know, it doesn't serve any conceivable purpose whatsoever apart from making refugee lives really difficult and, and miserable. Um, and creating more work for the Home Office that is already beyond capacity. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I'd like to do some work on, but I'm not sure I've really got capacity for, is, is like, how could the Home Office do less? Um, you know, obviously we can all think of things we'd like the Home Office not to do, but they're kind of, uh, is unlikely. But there are there are things the Home Office could do less of, I think. And one of the obvious things is just this constant extension of visa stuff where it doesn't serve any purpose and the home office just ought to, to own up to that um and you know the things like the recruiting social workers to do age assessments i mean that's nuts you know they, they just you know what do they need what are they thinking they're doing recruiting a bunch of people and managing them when previously that was done by local authorities well you know they should be doing less not more so yeah I, I'm, I'm sure there are some some sort of interesting ideas around that that um, we could come up with where you know, the Home Office could scale back its activities to, to to focus on sort of core activities instead of all the all the the, the unnecessary and, and pointless stuff that they do. Um, okay, so I think um, I, I I can't really think of anything to say on what's coming up over the coming year. I'm sure we'll have more cases. You know, we'll be looking at Rwanda litigation. We'll be looking at um, some of these criminal offences that that I mentioned earlier with the um, the small boat crossings and whether. People can rely on ex parte Adimi, um, you know, for, for for the new recast offences. Um, I guess we'll be seeing plenty of changes to the immigration rules, Sonia. Although, kind of, you know, I'm not, I can't foresee what we might be, might, what we might be seeing. Basically, I, I I can't really foresee any changes in immigration policy as such. Maybe some tightening of the student rules, student family rules. Maybe some tightening of skilled workers or shortage occupations, something like that. Um, and yeah, I think uh, unless you've got anything to to add, any any anything that's popped out of the crystal ball at you, then um, I think we'll move on to talk about a few of the other things that happened in December. Uh, no, I've smashed my crystal ball. Okay, wise, wise. I think given what's going on at the moment, right? Well, you were going to talk a bit about um, a few litigation issues, and um, we had a couple of blog posts in December on the duty of candor. Do you want to to set off on those? Um. Yes, this is another issue that really gets my blood pressure up. Um, so this is, what is the duty of candour? Um, it was summarised in the article as parties are expected to provide a true explanation of all relevant facts relating to the decision being challenged. Uh, this blog post was written in relation to the mobile phone seizure case, which we have covered previously. So I'll try not to rant too much about that. I mean, my experience in relation to the duty of candor is that the Home Office is appalling at it and that their lawyers will actively resist attempts to force disclosure. Um, the article looks at how to assess the frequency of breaches of duty of candor and says, unfortunately, we just don't know um, because judgments aren't published in relation to applications for specific disclosure. Um, so... That is all very difficult. This is just really another example of how Hamid applies only to claimant lawyers. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you you read that mobile phone seizure case, the, the duty of candor one, which is linked to in the article, and then you think exactly what conduct would be required for those lawyers to be sanctioned when you look at 
hammered cases for claimant lawyers who have been sanctioned for far, far, far more minor issues. Mm. Um, Indemnity costs were conceded, but I absolutely would have expected that they would have been ordered if the Home Office hadn't conceded on that. But there seems to have been zero accountability for any of the actual people who were involved. Um, I had a very minor gripe about the article. Go on. Which said... um, Whilst claimant lawyers routinely request uh, disclosure of relevant documents in pre-action letters, it is advisable to place explicit reliance on the duty of candor when doing so. It is also advisable to draw a defendant's attention to the cost consequences of non-compliance with the duty. Don't know about anyone else, but I do all of that in every single pre-action letter that I draft, and it is routinely responded to with an assertion that I must make a subject access request I won't go into a rant about how subject access requests are not processed, um, but, you know, that's not an adequate response. And asking nicely just doesn't cut it, I'm afraid. So, yes, if you feel like you're having too peaceful a day, go and read that article, basically. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I mean, there's two things sort of um, to, to say on that. So one is that judges seem to have a mindset where they think, well, government lawyers have got an awful lot to do and it's a very big department and they're under a lot of pressure and therefore, you know, it'd be a bit rude to sanction them. But they just don't, which is kind of fair enough in a way, but they just do not apply that thinking to claimant lawyers for some reason. And 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 it's just the kind of double standards of it is absolutely uh, infuriating, really, when it comes down to it. Um, the other, I've got a question for you. So, I, I would have thought that the terms of this judgment, as gentle as they are, um, would give pause for thought at the government legal department and that there would be some soul searching by government lawyers and that they would be a bit less gung-ho about, you know, um, a, a, about their approach to litigation. Any, any sign of that happening, Sonia? Not that I'm aware of, and mm. I don't think that's something that ever happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd have thought, but but wouldn't hope or expect, I think. You know, that, that I mean, would be a rational they, response, wouldn't it? If they were taking some sort of action like that, then why not make it clear and say, you know, we are taking internal action. You don't necessarily need to be explicit, but, you know, just to let people know that something has been done, something has changed as a result of this, and there's yeah. just no sign of that. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, there was another um, coincidental blog post on uh, also on duty of candor to do with social media stuff. Um, Do you want to lead on that as well? Yeah. So the case is BG and Hackney, an upper tribunal case. BG was an age disputed uh, person who was seeking asylum. And the standard directions that were issued, this is not something that had been requested by the local authority. so the, the order was that the person had to give access to their social media accounts, including their usernames and passwords, for local authority respondents to inspect. Those directions were challenged as being contrary to his rights under Article 8 and 10, so that's private life and freedom of expression, because they were too broad and ill-defined. Um, essentially, the tribunal decided that a disclosure statement would be required from 
the applicant solicitor to just confirming that the applicant has disclosed to them the details of their social media accounts and that the solicitor has undertaken a reasonable and proportionate search of those accounts to ensure that everything relevant to the issues in the case have been disclosed. So it's essentially a statement confirming that the duty of candor had been complied with. Again, difficult to see the GLD being given such an order um, or hoppos. Um, Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And where that statement exists, the tribunal said it's unlikely that an order for specific disclosure will be made. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Anya. And that's that's a really interesting point there at the end about, um, again, another example of implicit double standards of which judges simply aren't aware. You know, they just don't realise they're doing it and they really need to... I really, th- I really think they should. Um, I was going to quickly mention a case on false imprisonment and damages. I mean, the, the only thing it says is a case called Muradi. Um, the only thing really to say about it is that somebody um, was effectively penalised for failing to negotiate until the last minute. So it just it's just a reminder that um, of good practice, really, that you you, you really ought to be uh, proactive about these things and not leaving it until um, just before the before the hearing, which I'm sure all good litigators are very well aware of, but, you know, it's just useful to perhaps sometimes to have a reminder like that. Um, okay, going through our agenda, you were going to talk about tribunal, tribunal statistics. statistics. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so, you know, as always, if you're interested in all the numbers, go have a look. But just to give you a few numbers, there's a 54-week waiting time for asylum appeals, uh, which was around six months before the pandemic. So that is significant. Human rights appeals, average waiting time of 51 weeks. EEA, EUSS, around 37 weeks. Um, and a concerning statistic of 39 weeks for appeals from people who are in immigration detention. It looks like overall the backlog is clearing, though, and that is no doubt assisted by the drop in the number of, pe- of appeals that are received, and that has halved over the past decade. Yeah. And there's um, a sort of related story. I think this was just the day before the statistics or something, actually, about a £5 million investment to increase the number of days that the tribunals operate. And I think this was multiple tribunals, possibly not just immigration. But, um, you know, it, it looks like that backlog was coming down anyway, but hopefully will come down a bit a bit faster. Um, but it's, it's a reminder as well that, um, you know, the delays in the asylum system really are not at the appeal stage. So all of this stuff in the Nationality and Borders Act about streamlining appeals and reducing appeal rights and stuff, that's not why people are still in the country and not subject to removal. It's because of the delays at the Home Office. Um, so, so hopefully, um, yeah, hopefully things are speeding up a bit at the tribunal. Not that they're terrible at the moment, but um, hopefully they'll be getting better. Right. Um, now, finally, we're going to talk about EU, EU citizens, and you are going to talk about the blog post on um, benefit access for those with pre-settled status. Um, yes. So the case is Secretary of State for Works and Pensions and AT, Air Centre and the Independent Monitoring Authority intervening. Um, so it's a case to do with whether people with pre-settled status without any other qualifying right to reside are able to access benefits after the end of the transition period. Um, the applicant was successful here, but it's already been confirmed that this is going to the Court of Appeal on the point of whether the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights is applicable in these cases since the end of the transition period on 31st of December 2020. If this sort of thing is your bag, go and read the article, which will give you a lot more detail. And Chris knows far more about what he's talking about than I do right now. Um, I would also highlight that 
um, CPAG, which Child Poverty Action Group, has produced a useful note which is linked to at the bottom of the article. So you should read that as well as Chris's article. And also from Chris Ben, um, and also from the courts, we had another blog post about um, pre-settled status. And this one is called the Independent Monitoring Authority Against Sector Estate for the Home Department. And it's it's a huge one, basically, about pre-settled status. Although at the same time, it doesn't have necessarily much immediate impact. Um, so the reason I say it's huge is that um, basically, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do to sum this up so easily but basically the court held that people who apply under the eu settlement scheme and are granted pre-settled status so this is people who are granted five years of leave instead of indefinite leave straight away um, and then we're talking about a, a big number of people here it's um two million seven hundred thousand more or less um they are then once they've been granted pre-settled status they are protected by the withdrawal agreement and they shouldn't lose the rights that they have under the withdrawal agreement, even if they don't apply for an extension of leave at the end of their five-year period. So the reason I say that doesn't um, immediately affect anybody is that nobody was granted um, pre-settled status until, God, I think it was something like September 2018, something like that, when when the pilot started. So the five-year period will be coming to an end you know, no, no earlier than September 2023 for a very small number of people and then it'll be another sort of six nine 12 months later that that substantial numbers of people start to come through um whether this litigation will be resolved by then i, d- I don't know but um you know, it's potentially quite problematic for the government on one level because they set a lot of store by this distinction that they're drawing between people who immediately get settled status and people who get pre-settled status um and the whole point of the scheme was to make sure that everybody had a provable extant immigration status. So unlike the kind of transition away from uh, Commonwealth migration in the in the 70s, everybody would have I'm gonna say, I was about to say everybody would have a document, but it's not quite true, is it? Because they don't actually get documents much to everybody's annoyance. But everybody would have a kind of officially recorded status rather than there being people who have been declared to be lawful but the government isn't aware of, which became you know one of the problems that that led to the the Windrush um scandal. So it it's a really it's a really big decision. It's a really big um challenge to government policy. It's a massive failure of drafting and negotiation by the UK government who it turns out if this you know if this judgment is upheld didn't understand their own withdrawal agreement basically and 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 have 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 acted in breach of it with this scheme but as i say in the blog post or as, sorry as chris says in the blog post it's a bit of a joint effort this one um it's not that hard for the government to solve that because in fact they will be aware of the people with pre-settled status because they've already come forward and applied so all the go and, and they haven't even issued them with documents so all the government has to do is change you know a little number on the database from a zero to a one and and suddenly they've got status so i don't think this is you know it's not a disaster for the government in in kind of operational terms they they, they would be able to to deal with this if the judgment is ultimately upheld um and um yeah, but whether yeah whether it will be, I don't know. I know. 
I think it's pretty legally robust. Um, I, I think the, the government has um, misinterpreted the, the scheme. I think it's, you know, the, the arguments that were put to the court and that the court ultimately agreed with were pretty powerful ones. Um, but that could prove to be wrong. You know, the Court of Appeal will be having a look at this and perhaps also ultimately the Supreme Court. Um, have you got any any thoughts on this one, Sonia? Absolutely none. Absolutely none. Yeah, and it's um, it, it's a it is a really big deal in terms of uh, law and policy. Uh, it, but as I say, it has very little immediate impact because those people with pre-settled status aren't coming to the end of that that period that they've been granted for some time yet. So um, it's nothing to get anxious about um, in in the short term. Okay, well, I think that kind of epic um, epic run brings us to a close. Um, so that's it for December um, 2022, and indeed the whole of 2022, with a kind of look, look back at what happened that year. Um, we'll be back next month. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.